You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glad that you could join us here tonight for this first of the Sunday nights throughout this year that we're going to spend going deeper into God's Word. And I have to say, I'm very excited about these Sunday nights, and it gets me the, the role that I get to play in them, uh, that for the first Sunday of every month, as much as I'm going to be here, and there's going to be a couple months when I can't be here, uh, we're going to be going through, and, in, and I think in a very wonderful way, I'm so grateful for the way Pastor Zach has organized this. That in the first session, we're going to be talking about some specific biblical themes and doctrines and, and topics. And then in the second part of the study that we have together here on the first Sunday night of the month, we're going to be talking about uh, sections of the Bible and understanding the different parts of the Bible and what's unique and special and, and memorable and helpful for us about those things. And let me say before we get into our proper session tonight, the first session, I can think of no more needful thing for us at this time, at this place, with where our nation is at, than to really press in hard to the Lord and to get wisdom from His Word. I think of what's happened in the last week in our country. And I think that, really, I was thinking about the other day that no matter what political background you come from, there was no doubt something last week that caused you grave concern. All across the aisle. And what's really hard for me about this, if I can just be transparent, is just wondering, who do you trust? Who do you trust to tell you the story about what really happens? Who do you trust to give you a balanced, full-orb perspective? Who do you trust in our media? Who do you trust in our politicians? Who do you trust on social media? Now, it draws me back into something that I remember and, and take great confidence in my heart with. I, I don't know if I can work out in my mind or in my heart the problems with the media and the politicians and the system, and all that. But I do know this. I love and trust the, the people that God has put in our community with. I mean, we feel that way towards one another, don't we? we? We don't think that we're perfect, and we certainly don't think that we're infallible one to another. We're certainly capable of being wrong or making mistakes. But we love and trust one another. But then, secondly, and even in a greater sense, we love and trust our God and the word that he's given us. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who work hard to accomplish things in society and politics the way that they really believe God wants them to. I do. I, I think that's a noble thing. I think it's good for Christians to be politically involved. But, as you've heard me say often, 
We never put our hope in politics or in politicians. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. How great it is for us to come to something here this evening that we can absolutely positively trust. That our rest in, our hope is, we don't have to read it with reservations. We don't have to read it, well, it's just really, no, this is the word of the Lord and it nourishes my soul and it strengthens my hope and I pray that it gives me wisdom to know how to think and how to act in such crazy times that we're in right now. Now, with that being said, let's talk about this Bible. Let's talk about the story of the Bible. God has given humanity. You could even say that he's given all of creation the greatest of all stories. Now, I don't deny for a moment the Bible is filled with great stories, isn't it? We teach them to our children. We talk about them all the time. They're, they're proverbial stories, not only among church people, but even in the broader culture. People know about Noah in the ark. People know about Gideon's unlikely victory. Everybody knows about David and Goliath. People know about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They know about Daniel in the lion's den. They know about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. They knew, know about miracles Jesus did, like uh, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. They know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible is filled with amazing stories, isn't it? Now, what I want you to consider is that even though all of those are great stories, many of us don't realize that there is a greater story, one that stretches all the way from Genesis to Revelation. What we're talking about here is God's big story, the story of the Bible as a whole. And God's big story, the story of the Bible, it's greater than anyone could ever imagine. It's the greatest of stories, but I want you to understand this. It's more than just a story. We're not talking about legends. We're not talking about fairy tales. We're talking about a story about something and things that really happened and really will happen. And this is a story that impacts everything. I don't mean that as an exaggeration. Every man, every woman, every child who has ever existed has some place in this story that God is working out. And all of creation has a place in this story. You could say that the story we're talking about tonight is the story of all times. It comprehends the past, the present, and the future. Now, it's a story that's centered on a place. Today, we call that place Israel, although it's a little bit bigger than the actual geographic boundaries of Israel. But just basically in mind, we could say it's centered on that particular place. It's the story of a people. Now, it's true that this story touches all of humanity that's ever lived, but the story in the Old Testament focuses on the Jewish people and the story in the New Testament focuses on the church, the disciples of Jesus Christ. But most pointedly, most importantly, this is the story not only of all times, of a place, of a people, it's a story of a particular person. Do you know who the leading man of this story is? Has anybody got a guess for me? It's Jesus. He is the leading man of this story. It's really all about Jesus Christ. I can't say it strongly enough. Jesus is the point 
of the whole story. Now, let me read to you. You can turn here if you'd like to. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It would not surprise me if you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and as we take a look at verses 9 and 10, you may be registering in mind, David, I think I've heard you talk about these verses sometime before, and it wouldn't surprise me at all because I love talking about these verses. To me, these are some of the most important verses, giving us an idea of God's great story. Look at this here, verses 9 and 10, Ephesians chapter 1. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Verses 9 and 10 of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, tell us the point, the summation, the end of God's great story. It's to sum up, to gather together everything in Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul's explaining to us, look again at verse 9, is what's been made known to us by the mystery of His will. It's what God has revealed to us through His apostles and prophets. And this will has to do with, as he says here, the dispensation of the fullness of times. That word dispensation there has the idea of a plan or a strategy. God has a plan. He's a strategy that's working out throughout history. And here it is right for us. The whole goal of it, the whole purpose of it is to do what? It's to... Verse 10, gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, just like it sounds there, that phrase, gather together in one, it has a mathematical sense. The way I like to express it, it's as if God has drawn out a great big equation on a blackboard, and he tells us what the answer to the equation is. The answer is Jesus Christ. Everything sums up into Him. He's the reason for everything. He's the sum of everything. He is the answer that the world is looking for. That's what Paul's telling us here. That He might gather together in all, all things, gather together, excuse me, in one, all things, in Christ. And just in case we didn't get the message, look at how he ends verse 10 there. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. He's just repeating himself, but he's doing it for emphasis. God is going to unite. He's going to sum up. He's going to bring everything together in Jesus Christ. Do you remember those memorable words from Paul's letter to the Philippians where it says that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, in heaven, in earth, under the earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is an aspect of this summing up. Ladies and gentlemen, there's going to come a day when every being in the universe understands and sees Jesus for who he is. I wish that meant that every being would be in heaven, but it doesn't mean that. Because here's how it works. Everything will be resolved in Jesus Christ. But in some things, for some people, for those who choose it to be so, 
Everything will be resolved in Jesus as their glorious king. For other people, everything will be uh, resolved in Jesus as their uh, utterly righteous judge. Which do you want to know Jesus as for all of eternity? Glorious king or righteous judge? Both of those are true aspects of his character. And as if God gives all of humanity the choice, here it is, here's your choice. How do you want to know Jesus for all of eternity? Because it's all going to come back to him. Glorious king or righteous judge. But one way or another, it all gets resolved in Jesus Christ. That's the end of the story. Now, if the end of the story is already written, we want to take a look at the entire story along the way. And if the Bible is one story, you could say that it's organized like this. Here's five aspects to God's story. Ready? Prelude. I'd call that eternity past. Introduction. I'd call that the creation. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Then I would call it Act 1. Act 1 is humanity's fall. Sometimes we think of the fall as just being Genesis chapter 3. But let me tell you something. What the book of Genesis shows us is that when humanity fell in Genesis 3, he kept falling. So I would call the fall everything from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Genesis chapter 11. That's Act 1 the third point there. Then the fourth aspect, act two, God's glorious plan of redemption beginning at uh, Genesis chapter 12 and going all the way through uh, to Revelation chapter 20. And then you have the postscript at the end, Genesis, excuse me, Revelation chapters 21 and 22 where all things are gloriously resolved in Jesus Christ. Now, let's just walk through those piece by piece. First of all, the prelude, eternity past. You could say that the story begins with God himself, because before there was ever a beginning, God existed. Psalm 93 verse 2 says, Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. You know, some people are troubled by the question, where did God come from? Who created God? Let me tell you, the very answer to that question is found in the definition of God. God is the uncreated being. He's eternal. He's without beginning, without end. There's a great man of the last century named J. Edwin Orr. He has a wonderful definition of God that I'd like to share with you here. This is how J. Edwin Orr defined God. He said, God is the only infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit, the perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. I think that's a pretty good definition of God. God is, by definition, self-existent. Before there was anything else in the universe, there was God. And if I could go just a step deeper, there was not only God, but there was also God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
One God in three persons. Now, I understand an objection gets raised in the mind of some people, and I understand the objection. David, I have a hard time figuring out how there can be one God in three persons. You say, well, let's just acknowledge here that God is probably bigger than our ability to comprehend. I don't have a hard time with that. God is bigger than my ability to fully comprehend. But I know what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that there's one God in three persons, and that God has existed for all of eternity. And before God ever created anything, God existed in perfect love, in perfect fellowship, in perfect harmony among the persons of the Holy Trinity. But then God, to work out His wonderful story that we're taking a look at in a whole comprehensive sense here tonight in our first session, to, to, to launch that story, God started in on the second aspect, the introduction to the story, and that's creation. God created a world. And you know, that's found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. To work out this story, to work out this plan, God created the heavens of the earth. And I know that right now I'm speaking about it in just a couple sentences. We could talk about creation for weeks upon weeks on end. But you could say that the fact that God has created everything, that is everything. It's a massive truth. See, brothers and sisters, if it is true that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's within them, then the rest of the Bible isn't hard to believe at all. Go ahead, just start with it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. If you believe that, the rest of the Bible's easy. It really is. The God who has the power and the wisdom and the design and the brilliance to create everything, God can do everything else that's described in the Bible. And this is why I think it's so important for us to come back again and again to the truth that God is our creator when we live in a day and an age where so many people in our society have willfully rejected that truth. They've willfully rejected the truth that we have a creator because when you understand that you have a creator, you understand that you have an inborn obligation to that creator. And we do have exactly that. So God created everything. There is a creator to whom we must give account. And I'll tell you something else about God's creation that's very important to understand. God created a universe that works with the principle of cause and effect. That's how God engineered the universe. And when God engineers a universe with the principle of cause and effect, one thing that that tells us is that actions have consequences. Do you understand that? This is a fundamental idea in all of our moral order. Parents, isn't this what you desperately want your children to learn as they grow up? Actions have consequences. And it's true. You could almost say that it's an unshaking truth. Morally, spiritually, in physics, actions have consequences. 
Because God has created this as a cause and effect world. And those actions and their consequences were evident in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which really brings us to Act 1. Again, we had the prelude. That's God in eternity past. Then we had the introduction, God's creation of the world. Now we have Act 1, beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Adam deliberately, with full knowledge, sinned against God. What a heinous thing Adam did. God had never given him the slightest reason to doubt him or to reject him. And Adam said, no, God, I'm going to go my own way. And the human race has followed Adam in those footsteps ever since. Adam sinned, and that had consequences. Cain sinned. He sinned by murdering his own brother. That had consequences. Humanity turned from God in a radical way, so much so that God brought a great flood to cleanse the earth. Mankind's sin had consequences. And then even after the flood, you would think that if anything might fix mankind and its inherent rebellion against God, it might be a worldwide cataclysm like the flood, but it didn't work. Man still rebelled terribly against God at the Tower of Babel. And that had consequences. God engineered this world with cause and effect, action and consequence, and mankind was reaping the bitter fruit of his rebellion against God. Now let me stop right here and say, there are many people who don't like God's story. They wish God had written a different story. Usually the story goes something like this. Why couldn't it have always been like it was with Adam and Eve in the garden before anybody ever sinned? Why could not have that been humanity's existence forever? And here we would just all be in a sinless world. And Listen, what you're asking God to create is a world where actions do not have consequences. Where Adam can rebel against God in the most heinous way, but it doesn't matter. There's no price to pay. Nothing happens from it. Brothers and sisters, this is what you have to know. If you live in a world where actions have no consequences, that, that in some ways kind of appeals to us a little bit. It appeals to me when I've done bad. Every time I do something bad, I wish it had no consequences. But here's the thing. I don't want to live in a world where everybody else's bad actions have no consequences. I just want to live in a world where my bad actions have no consequences. In addition, I also want to live in a world where my good actions have some consequence. I want to live in a world where my actions have some meaning in life. And if you strip consequences away from everything, then what we do has no meaning. It has no meaning in time, and it has no meaning in eternity. If you wished that God would have created 
meaningless robots to populate the Garden of Eden, then fine, that's your story. But it's not God's story. And honestly, when I think about it, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that that's a better story. No, there are people who don't like God's story. But I'm telling you, it's the best story. God knows exactly what he's doing. He has constructed and is acting out his story with perfect wisdom and perfect execution. Now, I don't say that to deny the great pain and suffering that there is in our world. And I don't want you to wish away the pain and suffering of our world just with some positive thinking. No, when we look at the world around us, we say, this is not the best possible world. One less murder. One less act of violence against a woman. One less corrupt politician. And it's a better world, isn't it? No, we do not presently live in the best possible world. But here's what God says. The best possible world is the result of the world that we live in now. What God gives to us right now is the best possible way to the best possible world. And that's all written into God's wonderful, glorious story. Now again, I understand there's people, and I have some sympathy with the thought that say that's not how I would do it. I'd make a different story. I just respectfully say two things to you. If you really think God should have written a different story, first of all, I say this with great respect. It's not going to sound respectful, but I'm trying to say it with respect. Who cares what you think? If you want to create your own universe, then you can write your own story. <laughs> I think if God created everything, it's his authority to write the story the way he wants. And, you know, you see people just kind of, you know, the, the sideline spectators. Well, I think you should have done it like that. You know, there we are watching the football game with huge 350-pound men crashing into one another in the field. And we're like, well, you know what? He should have done that. Oh, yeah, well, why don't you get under there and have a 350-pound man, man running at you with all his men? See how well you do in that situation. Oh, yeah, we're great sideline critics of everything, aren't we? And what sideline do we have to criticize anything about God? So on the one hand, you think God should have written a different story? Who cares? But here's the second thing, and this is even more important. Understand this about God's story. Even though God planned it so that a world that allows sin and suffering is the best possible way to the best possible world, God did not distance himself from the pain and suffering. God said, I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to add humanity to my deity, and I'm going to walk among you, and I'm going to walk among you as a human being who experiences the pain and suffering that humanity goes through. God says, I'm going to walk with you in this journey, not apart from you, with you. And does that not show the marvelous love of God for us? It, it should be a comfort to us all. But there's no denying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis show man falling 
falling, falling further. Well, that brings us to Act 2. In Act 2, starting at Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm going to start rolling out my plan in a more visible way. Now, I don't want you to think for a moment that God just thought up his plan in Genesis chapter. No, this plan was, was figured out before the foundation of the world. As well, God even announced aspects of the plan way back in Genesis chapter 3 when he said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So, so Genesis chapter 12 isn't the, the uh, creation of God's plan. It's just more of the revelation of God's plan. When God says this to a guy named Abram, Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This glorious covenant that God made with Abraham. Featuring three things. Featuring a land. Do you know what the land is that God promised Abraham? The land of Israel, the land of Canaan. He promised him a nation. Do you know the nation that came from Abraham? The Jewish people, Israel. And he promised him a blessing that would extend to all the families of the earth. Do you know the blessing that came from Abraham? That's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that would be a blessing to every tribe and tongue on the face of the earth. A land, a nation, and a blessing. And in that, God spells out so much of the story that's going to follow. The story takes place centered in the land of Israel. The story takes place, at least in the Old Testament, focused on the people of Israel, and the story centers on the Messiah who will be revealed, Jesus Christ. That's what God does in and through Abraham, making him that promise. Well, so what happens with Abraham? Abraham has a son, doesn't he? What's Abraham's son? His name is Isaac. I'm going to leave Abraham's other son out of this because it just isn't really relevant. Let's talk about what the Bible calls Abraham's only begotten son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons. What were their names? Esau and Jacob. Which one received the covenant? Jacob did. As the Bible says, the older shall serve the younger. Esau was older. Jacob was younger. But God was going to flip the script with those two and the younger would receive the covenant. So we talk about the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob had some sons, didn't he? How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve sons. He also had a daughter. Does anybody know Jacob's daughter's name? Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. That's how I've always remembered that. Okay, so twelve sons and one daughter. Those twelve sons became the tribes of Israel. This was the people. This was the, the nation that was going to come forth. The promised Messiah was going to come forth from those people, and they would inherit the land that God promised for them, but not yet. Because at the end of the book of Genesis, that family, that large family, 100, 120 or so people, 
they leave the promised land and they go to Egypt. What are they doing in Egypt? God took them to Egypt using a famine to get them there so that they could become a, they could make the transition, I should say, from a large family to a nation there in Egypt. God had to take them to a place where they would not assimilate with the surrounding peoples. If the people of Israel would have stayed in Canaan, they would have just assimilated with the Canaanites, and you would hear nothing more of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would just assimilate in the midst of the Canaanites. But what God did was He took them from Canaan and put them in Egypt. And this is what you have to know about Egypt at that time in the ancient world. The Egyptians were one of the most racist societies on the face of the earth. They had very little intermarriage with other peoples. A little. You'll find some examples of it, but very little. Therefore, the people of Israel could stay in Egypt without mixing with the Egyptians, and they could multiply as a nation and never lose their distinctive character as being the covenant people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they spent 400 years in Egypt, most of it in slavery, until God sent a deliverer to them. That's in the book of Exodus. And the deliverer's name was Moses. And Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no way. And then Moses said again, well, look at what God's going to do. And what God did was through a series of plagues, he knocked down the gods of Egypt and he exalted himself all the way culminating in the final plague, the plague of the firstborn, which was an attack directly against the deity of Pharaoh himself. And the children of Israel were allowed even pushed out of Egypt because the Egyptians were so sick of it. So when they came out of Egypt, where did they go? Well, they went through the Red Sea, and then they came to Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? They made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. This is Exodus chapter 24, starting at verse 3. I'm going to read all the way through verse 8. These verses describing the making of the Mosaic Covenant there at Mount Sinai. We read this. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you and according to all these words. Can you imagine 
being in that crowd and hearing Moses read the words of the law and then together with the nation saying, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Now, if you were going to be truly historically accurate, if you were there among that crowd saying those words, you'd have done it like this. All that the Lord has said, we will do. You know, like we used to do as children. Kids don't do that anymore, do they? Cross their fingers and hold it behind your back because then you're telling a lie, but it's okay. Because Israel didn't do all that the Lord said they should do. But they said they would. And there you are. All that the Lord has said, you will do. And then the next thing, splashing on your face are a few droplets of warm blood mixed with water. And the blood of the covenant is upon us as a people. I told you that the covenant God made with Abraham had three aspects. It had the aspects of the land, the nation, and the blessing. I would say that the covenant that Israel made with God at Mount Sinai also had three aspects. Here are the three aspects. It had the aspects of the law, that was the law that they were supposed to keep. It had the aspect of the sacrifice and everything associated with sacrifice, such as the ceremony and the priestly systems. The sacrifice was because they couldn't keep the law. And then finally, it had the aspect of the choice. What was the choice all about? The choice was God saying, Israel, you are my chosen people from here on out. You have an enduring role in my unfolding plan of the ages. And sometimes you're going to like it and sometimes you won't. When you obey me, you're going to love it because I bless you so much. When you don't, I'm going to correct you so severely that you're going to wonder, God, we're your chosen people. Couldn't you have chosen somebody else? Which is many times the way that the Jewish people have felt throughout the centuries, have they not? This was another way that God furthered the story by making this nation that would hold on to his word proclaim through his prophets, keep the institutions of Judaism, and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So history unfolded. They went through the wilderness. They came into the promised land under the leadership, not of Moses, but of Joshua, who received the torch on from Moses. Joshua brought the people into the promised land, and then they're in the promised land. They had 400 years of these uh, uh, spontaneous leaders that God would raise up when the need was great. These leaders called judges. And that's in the book of Judges. 400 years where there was no king over Israel. Just when there was a need, God would raise up a magnetic leader to lead the people and bring deliverance to them. Some of them were wonderful leaders. Some of them were really weird leaders. But it was a weird time and God brought them through those 400 years. After the 400 years, the people of Israel were tired of not having a king. So they asked God, no, they demanded of God a king, and God gave them a king. He gave them the king from central casting. The king who looked the part but didn't have the heart. A king named Saul. Saul was a disaster. But then God gave them a second king to replace Saul. 
I think that if they would have been patient, God would have allowed David to be their first king. But that's just a supposition on my part. David was their first good king. And David established a royal line that lasted all through the kingdoms of Judah until the fall of Babylon, and in some sense, in a very real spiritual sense, continues until it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. So you had King Saul, King David. David's son was named Solomon. Under these three kings, the 12 tribes of Israel were united into one kingdom. But after the death of Solomon, his foolish son Rehoboam took the throne. And in the days of Rehoboam, there was a civil war and the 12 tribes split up into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of the northern 10 tribes. That kingdom was called Israel, and their capital was Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom of the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And that kingdom was called Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. The kingdom of Israel was a disaster. How many good kings did the northern kingdom of Israel have? Zero. They had one guy who was almost good, but he didn't make it. And they ended their kingdom disgracefully being conquered by the cruel Assyrians. Then about 135 years later, eventually the sin and compromise of the southern kingdom caught, it, caught up to it. The southern kingdom had a mixture, some good kings, some bad kings, some mediocre kings, but finally, the sin and corruption became so great that they were conquered under the judgment of God by the Babylonians. But God left behind another covenant that he made. This was a covenant that he made with David way back in the days of the United Kingdom, where he promised David that a king would come from him who would reign over all. Take a look at this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to begin in the middle of verse 11. This is the Lord speaking to David. Also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him, chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall never depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Does anybody have a particular descendant in mind of King David in whom that promise was fulfilled? I'll give you two guesses. Jesus Christ. All right, that's one guess, but it's two words. It was all fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. Because that's what the whole story points towards. We had the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. But brothers and sisters, it all gets perfected in what we call the new covenant. 
that was prophesied in the Old Testament, but fulfilled by Jesus. Because after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, God allowed, excuse me, after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, yes, after the fall of Judah by the Babylonians, they were carried away into exile. Then the Babylonian Empire fell. Then God allowed, through the grace of the Persians, that the people of God would be able to come back and rebuild and reestablish in Jerusalem, which they did. And then you have the last few prophets of the Old Testament. You have uh, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, these post-exilic prophets in the days of Nehemiah, in the days of Ezra, the prophet, rebuilding what was destroyed. Then at the end of that Old Testament history, you have 400 years of silence. Nothing coming forth from the prophets of God for 400 years until God begins to move in the days of the parents of John the Baptist first, and then in the birth of Jesus, and then in the life and ministry of Jesus, until you have Jesus gathered together after his glorious three-year ministry with his disciples, Jesus gathering together with his disciples solemnly at the Last Supper, right before he was going to go to the cross, and looking at them and saying over a Passover meal, this is the new covenant in my blood. Not the Abrahamic covenant. Not the Davidic covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant. But the new covenant that would be established in the blood of Jesus. By his death. By the sin that he bore on the cross. One to satisfy every sacrifice. One to satisfy every need for atonement. Jesus Christ would provide it at the cross and establish a new covenant. And that's what he did. The new covenant prophesied in the old, but instituted in the new. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. And then you know what Jesus left behind? He left behind what you might call a new covenant community. You know what we call that today? The church. That's what we are. We're the community of the new covenant. Here we are together, Jew and Gentile, uh, slave and free, Greek and barbarian, rich and poor, uh, every strata of society together. Here we are together as part of God's new covenant community that God is working in and through now until the resolution of all things. Which brings us, if you'll say, to our postscript. The book of Revelation describes the events leading to the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant and God's overall story. And you could say that it all finds its consummation here in Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. 
Do you know who the they is of those verses? It's that new covenant community that God's been building. It's you. It's us. This is the consummation of all things. This is the beautiful conclusion to this great story that God has been writing throughout all ages. And I'll tell you this, it's a beautiful consummation. If you look at those verses again, just look at them piece by piece. No more curse. That's a perfect restoration. A throne in their midst. That's a perfect administration. Their servants shall serve him. That's perfect subordination. They shall see his face. That's perfect transformation. They'll have his name on their foreheads. That's perfect identification. They'll have God as their light. That's perfect illumination. And they'll be reigning forever with him. That's perfect exaltation. It's going to be all together collectively with that. From beginning to end, God has an amazing story for us. Now, how do we get a little bit better organized with understanding that story from the scriptures? I say let's talk about that in our second session. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.